Okay. Haggai. <laughs> Woo. You guys you should be sitting in the front row for Haggai. Um, last week, we talked about, uh, we got philosophical. We talked about existential angst. And some of you were like, I didn't like that. And that's okay. Um, but the, we talked about the overarching purpose for our lives. And, and we made the case that is really, really possible. In fact, uh, really, really easy to mislive. It's really easy to mislive our lives. And we asked a couple actually three questions, and we're going to quickly pop those on the screen. Uh, The first question is, do you know what you want? Is that that one on there? There it is. Do you know what you want? And this is just like thinking about your life. Do you know what you want? The second question we asked is, is what you want worthy of your whole life? And the third question was, are you absolutely sure about that? And this creates in us kind of the conversation about existential angst. Like, is is what I want really worthy about what I'm putting everything in my life towards? Now, we're stepping into a story of a whole nation dealing with existential angst. And this is where we find ourselves as we jump into this book of Haggai. They're not... They don't, they don't know what they want. It, it seems like they're confused on what they want, and they're not giving themselves to something worthy of their whole life. And they woke up, and they realized that they had lost the plot. And they realized that they had been misliving. So the book of Haggai is 38 whole verses long. Some of you are like, that's my kind of book. 38 verses long written 2,600 years ago. And I think that's important for us to note that because, actually, my math's not right on that. It wasn't 2,600. It was more like 2,400, 2,500 years ago. Not that you care. (laughs) Because I could just see some of you going, wait a second, you know. Um, And I'm hoping this conversation over the next number of weeks kind of helps us recalibrate around what is the most important thing to get. Because it is super easy, not only for a human being to mislive, it's actually really easy for a church to mislive. Really easy. And we have stories of that (laughs) all over the place. But before we dive in, we need a backstory. And if you've been around here enough to know that we're kind of context nerds, we want to know what's going on here. We don't want to just read the scripture flat. We need to know what's happening. So there's going to be some history. And my favorite, there's going to be some maps. (laughs) I love maps. It's my thing. So real quick background. Uh, People of Israel... Uh, Abraham becomes a covenant with God. There are, it starts God's covenant people. Um, they, they move from um, 
the desert, like after uh, Egypt and everything, they moved into the desert and then 40 years and then into the promised land. And, and there's this, this beginning, right, of a nation trying to figure its way into existence. And there's kings um, there's just a whole bunch of horrible stories that are very human, and there's some kings. Um, and then there's David. And David, sorry, there's one king, and then there's David. And then David is, uh, builds kind of what God wants to happen. Um, and he does it really messy and very human. And then Solomon uh, takes over his son. And Solomon has two sons. And after Solomon dies, there's just a whole bunch of drama. And Israel, basically the people of Israel, split in two groups. The ten northern tribes called Israel, and then the two southern tribes called Judah. And in this kind of arrangement, um, we see 42 kings in Israel, the northern group. Five of them were considered by God people after his own heart. A few of them were kind of in and out of being doing what God wants and not, and the rest of them were just doing their own thing. And we have a bunch of idolatry and rebellion, and then what happens is, is there's a prophet named Amos. And Amos comes from Judah, he comes from the southern tribes, and he comes up, and he starts to speak words of prophecy over the people of Israel, which they didn't like so much. No one likes that. And he's basically saying, if you keep going down this road, something's going to happen. Something happened. And do you remember back in our conversation in Revelation, we talked about the day of the Lord when the people of Israel actually began to act like Babylon and God sent another nation to deal with Israel. And this was called the day of the Lord. Okay, This is what happens. The Assyrians show up. The Assyrians show up and what they do is they take a number of people off with them to Assyria but then they leave some of their own people to hang out in the land of Israel. And what happens is, is they, and they leave some of the Israelites there. And so they're just kind of, you know, in a sense, spreading their culture everywhere they go. So the Assyrian people and the, the, the leftovers of the Israelite people live together in the same area for like 130 years. And they intermarry, and this is where we get the term Samaritan. Okay, this is where the Samaritan people come from. Now, Israel does their thing. They get uh, their, their day of the Lord. Judah is like 135 years behind them. And then what happens with Judah is similar. The prophet Jeremiah tells them, hey, you guys are in rebellion, you're in idolatry, this is what's going to happen if you don't change your ways. Judah has their own day of the Lord, and the Babylonians come and take care of them. And they cart off almost everybody. They leave the poorest of the poor to farm the land, 
and they cart off everybody else into exile. I'm going to show you a map. Um, the one with a lot of arrows, there it is. So you can see uh, Jerusalem. Uh, there's a big thing that says city of Jerusalem. You see that? And then Babylon. Well, Jerusalem and Babylon are only about 750 miles like as the crow flies. But look at the journey they take to get there. It's like 1,700 miles walking. Remember, just we're, just, we're walking. Um, and this is the route that they take to Babylon to be in exile. Now, you can just leave that map up for a little bit. Um, like I said, this is all background. This is, helps us understand what's happening in Haggai, okay? And the prophet Isaiah for, for, foretells about all of this. So the Assyrians go first, 722 B.C., 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in. They take care of Judah. The temple is destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant is gone, never to be found again until Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then the face melt. Anyhow, um, <laughs> so they're in exile, okay? And so in Babylon, they're in exile. And this is the book of Daniel. We read the book of Daniel, and Daniel is um, a Jewish young man in exile with his friends, and he's part of the ruling class, and there's a whole conversation there that we've gotten into, and the book of Ezekiel happens in exile as well. And midway through their, their captivity, another empire takes Babylon, right? So like there's a bigger fish out there, and this, this empire is Persia, and Persia takes control of Babylon. Okay, so it's like this Game of Thrones kind of conquest going on all over the place, um, and then the, the Persians come in, and they're still ruling over the Jewish people, but they're more tolerant of the Jewish people, and, and they basically say, you can go back home. We're allowing you to go back to your native land. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, you remember the Babylonians left a whole bunch of poor people to farm the land, but the Assyrians had intermarried with the Assyrians and become the Samaritans. Nope. The Assyrians had intermarried with the Israelites to become Samaritans. And so they have actually kind of crept, started creeping down towards Jerusalem, which was not their country, right? So people start coming back, and there's this move to come back. 50,000 people return from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, that's not everybody. In fact, most of the people stayed. Most of the people who were taken into captivity, they built houses, they, they, they got married, they had kids, and Babylon was just, it was still working for them. So they stuck around. 50,000 people returned. Like I said, the majority stayed. The book of Esther is about the majority who stayed, okay? If you've ever read the book of Esther, that's what that is. The book of Haggai and Zechariah is about the people who came back and began to rebuild the temple, okay? The book of Nehemiah is about 
the, the same people coming back, but it's concentrating more on the rebuilding of the city and the walls. And the book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the people. So that gives you a little context of what your Old Testament looks like. You can read a little bit more about the story at the end of Second Chronicles and things like that. But then, but then there's a whole other history that's happening at the same time about Babylon. You see, so the Persians come in and they take over Babylon. And they're in for world domination, the Persians. And they're, they're a few decades away from this moment is the Greco-Persian Wars, which is when the Persians get all the way up into like northern, like Turkey, um, kind of Asia Minor, and they start knocking on the door of the Greeks. This is where you see the movie 300, which isn't real, but it's just, you know what I'm saying. So this is what happens when the Persians are starting to butt heads with the Greeks. And so there's all this war happening around them. There's stuff happening with the Egyptians. But King Cyrus of the Persians was a very interesting leader. He was very politically savvy, and he won the hearts of the people he ruled. And this is how he did it. He allowed them to worship their own gods. He did this thing where he said, nope, you, you don't have to worship mine. Do you remember uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar? He was like, nope, you got to worship my God and things like that. But King Cyrus is like, no, it's cool. In fact, I want you to go back. I want you to rebuild your temple. I want you to pray a prayer to your God for me. In fact, we actually have an inscription of Cyrus. He says this, May all the gods whom I have placed within their sanctuaries address a daily prayer in my favor. I mean, he's like capitalizing. He's a pluralistic guy. He's like, let's, I could take whatever prayer, you, you know, you give me. So now let's zoom in on Jerusalem. We're almost to the actual scripture, okay? We're going to zoom in on um, Jerusalem and the returning group of people, okay? The temple. They're supposed to rebuild the temple. And we're going to have a lot of background on the temple here in a, in a few weeks. But they get right to work on the temple. Put their stuff down, they figure out where they're going to sleep, and they start working on the temple. Now, this is the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon, and it got destroyed. This is the beginning of the second temple. And what happens is you fast forward to Jesus' day, and they're still tricking it out. Herod is still working on it. He's still building it. So there's going to be a lot of language we're going to be able to draw from Jesus' time as well. And then nearby Samaritans start picking fights with them. And they start freaking out, and they start writing letters to the king of Persia, saying, what are you doing? Why are you letting them rebuild the temple? Don't you know what that means? And they're trying to get the king of Persia to send an army to stop them from building the temple. And they basically write a letter that says, if you don't stop them, we will. Okay? And so the Jews get discouraged. And the next 16 years, <laughs> they focus on their own homes. They quickly start building the temple, get really discouraged, get threatened, and then they start building their own homes. And here comes Haggai. 
and he releases four messages to the people in 38 verses, which you are like, I wish Haggai was talking right now because this guy is talking forever. He basically does a series of things. He says, you've lost the plot. You've changed your focus. You missed the main deal. He, he, there's a, a part we're going to get into next week where some of the people know about how big the temple is supposed to be and how beautiful it's going to be, and they're like, it's not going to be anything like that. And so they get discouraged. They, they look back. Their, their, their whole vision is in the rearview mirror. Um, then he kind of encourages them that what they're part of is bigger than they can see. And then there's this fixing their hope on the future that he's going to get into. So, background over. Let's do this really quick. There's not a lot. It says this, in the second year of King Darius, so Cyrus is done, Darius is in. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel. By the way, Paige did way better (laughs) at reading this than I will be doing governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Je- that guy, the high priest. So here's some key dates, some key players. You got Darius, you got Zerubbabel, um, and you've got the date, August 29th, 521 BC. We, this is, there's not too many books of the Bible where you know the exact date. This is pretty cool. The governor, Zerubbabel, he was actually in line to be the next king. In fact, you will see his name in Matthew chapter 1 in a genealogy. He is actually in the genealogy of Jesus. But he can't be king. Persian king's not going to say, yeah, go back and be king. He's like, but you can be the governor, (laughs) right? You can't be the king, but you can be the governor. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. I love this line. <laughs> Where Haggai's saying, here's what God said, these people, not my people, these people. We read in Ezra that their work kind of got difficult. Like I said, it, there was suffering that sets in, that persecution sets in. And when, a lot of times when suffering or when um, things get hard, a lot of times we check out. When we get a little resistance in our lives and we're like, oh, it must not be from the Lord. That's just not true. Like there's sometimes we've just got to push through hard things. And it says, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time, uh, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, I just want you to say, God is not anti-house. He's not upset that they're living in houses. The key word here is paneled houses. And the reason why, I think this is just beautiful. There's a reason why he doesn't say, um, the time has not come, you're just living in your house. He says paneled houses. And that is a huge, like, what is going on here? Well, you got to understand something. In and around Jerusalem and all that area, there wasn't much wood. So if you needed wood, you had to really work hard. We, you know, they didn't have lumber yards. 
And so to have homes with paneled wood was an enormous luxury. In fact, most of the, the houses, archaeologists say it's all stone, and you could not get cedar close by. These are stone people. These are not woodworkers. And so to this day, in fact, you cannot build anything near the Temple Mount in Israel without it being the limestone of the area. It's really important for us to understand just the culture. Jesus was a builder. The word says Jesus was a tecton. He was a builder. He was not a carpenter. Sorry, Josh McDowell. He was not a carpenter. He was a builder. He was a builder of, like, with stone. And I'm sure they used some other things as well, but primarily he was a builder. So when it says wood for paneling, what we need to understand is they got pretty, they probably brought some wealth with them from Babylon, and they, they went to go get wood for their homes. And you would have to go up to, like, Lebanon, Phoenicia, you would have to spend some serious time, serious effort, and serious money to get that wood for your own home. And they were laser-focused on themselves. This is what the prophet Haggai is bringing out. And he says, while, and this is through God, while my house... My kingdom and my house lies in ruins. So the temple is the center of the city. It's not only the center of the city, it's the center of their public worship and their life. And all these houses are being built up around the temple, and they've got paneling, right? Not like that wall paneling in your 1970s basement, but like some nice cedar paneling. And there's these houses are going up all around the temple. And the temple is still a mess. It's crumbled. It's no one's doing anything on it for 16 years. And they're just saying, it's, it's just not time. And so it becomes a focus of their hearts. It's not about laziness, it's about priority. See, our loves and our longings end up being our priority, our desire. And Haggai comes along to change their desire. So God calls a timeout, and he says, okay, let's do a little life assessment. I'm going to do a little life assessment with you through Haggai. How is how you've been living the last 16 years working out for you? Like, how is it really measuring up? And he goes, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. Agricultural society, you get it. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Which some of us are feeling that right now. Feels like that these days. Um, but the indication is, you're not thriving. You are my people, but you're not thriving. You are spinning your wheels, and you are managing to exist only. 
You expected much, it says, verse 9, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. So this really sounds like God's just like one of those little kids. And I'm just trying to help you um, work through maybe some of your God issues. It may feel like God's like one of those little kids that if you don't play the way they want, that he just kicks down whatever you build. You know, like you're building something and the kid's like, I don't like it. Um, That's not what's going on here. And I could see how some people might read into that. God was completely behind their lack, and here's why. Because of their effort and their heart towards their own thing, they were totally committed to themselves. Um, God's basically saying, I am totally committed to your failure in pursuit of yourself. Which is hard for us to hear kind of goes against everything in our kind of individualistic, you know, like your best life now kind of thing. And the danger is that sometimes we think that anytime we feel suffering um, or we experience anything difficult in our lives, that God is mad at us. And that is not true. All throughout Scripture, that answer is no, that God is unconditionally for us and loves us. At times, He gets out of our way, and we experience the the mess that we create on our own. Suffering, I think, happens for three reasons. And maybe times that my own personal rebellion, my own personal mess-making creates that suffering in my life right? I, I, you kind of, you got to sleep in the bed you make kind of a thing. And sometimes this is really in some ways in God's love for us to allow us to come to the end of our own self and reach out. Sometimes suffering happens in our life because of others, Many of us have experienced suffering in our lives because of the act of people in our lives, whether that be being victimized or abused or whatever. And then sometimes we experience suffering just by being human beings because we live in a place that is broken and not completely how God wants it to be. So our bodies don't work the way they should. Even down to the cells in our bodies don't work the way they should. And, and so I think that's really important for us to understand that it's not God, like just because you got sick, isn't God doing that? <laughs> or, or this abusive parent in your life, it wasn't God's design for you. It's, it's really important. Sometimes we can read some of these prophetic messages and go, you know, my, my, <laughs> I had a roommate in, in Christian college that was he told me one day that the Broncos lost because God was punishing him for sleeping with his girlfriend. <laughs> what? <laughs> Broncos have been losing a lot lately, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> Just like. But we can at times, as people, bring about the corrective judgment from God. And I, th- I really think that this is in, in more of a kind of a group setting. 
Like if God's people are willingly and willfully going against what God wants, I think God's going to step in. Deuteronomy 28 says this, this uh, to the people of Israel. It's kind of a warning. It says, you will sow much and seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. Now, this is that kind of a warning. Like, if you turn your back on me, I can't, you're, 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 you're going to be frustrated. And, and be careful here because it's not a, a kind of a prosperity gospel thing either. We, let's jump back into Haggai before we get to some of that. Haggai says this in verse 10, therefore, because you have you, the heavens, have withheld the, their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains. On the grain, that's just correlate. This is all going to correlate with Deuteronomy. On the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So it's just like this idea like you are as a nation turning and doing your own thing. And because of that, I'm not going to I'm not going to just heap a bunch of blessing on you. And so they experienced like all these things, like it's where well, crops aren't really, you know, doing the things. And so for 15 years, you poured into yourself. And here's what God said. We got nowhere. For 15 years, you poured into yourself and we got nowhere. Does that make sense? The worst thing you can do with your life is to be totally committed to it. This is the idea here in Scripture. The worst thing you and I can do with our lives is be absolutely laser-focused on ourselves, being totally committed to it. And this goes against our whole culture. And it's really hard for us to hear this because God's economy is a bit different. It's backwards. It's a backwards economy from ours. Remember, last week, lose your life to save it. And, and that's Jesus talking. He's like, you, I have a vision for your life and it involves you losing it to experience the fullness that I have for you. It's this radical call. And, and basically, uh, the prophet Haggai is saying, your purse has holes in it. Like everything you do is just falls away. Kim Cross, I have a very large quote. Get ready. Very large quote, and I think it's really helpful for us. Um, it goes like this. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And by the way, this is David Foster Wallace, who's not a believer. If you, okay, worship money and things, if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before you, 
they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, and parables. The skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is they are in unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Now, if that doesn't feel a little bit about where the Israelites are. Um, you know, it's just an idea about considering our ways, right? You pour into what matters most. And so what do we do in our lives when we experience this kind of losing the plot? Um, maybe the past season of your life, maybe last week was the beginning of kind of a conversation with yourself about what is most, what do I want? And is what I want the most important thing um, to be wanting, right? Um, we've spent seasons pouring into our lives, our comfort, and maybe you've just woken up and realized that has not panned out. Then I've poured into this and that, and I've tried to boost my career. And, and, and basically what this is, the prophet is holding up, um, in a sense, showing them the mirage, right? That it just falls apart. So what do we do when we get to this place in our lives? That we feel like all the things that we've done have really been for nothing. Well, to bring us back a couple weeks when Mandy was teaching is this idea of confession and repentance. Confession, and, and I love the definition that Mandy used, was making an agreement with reality. Like just being really agreeable. Like this is my reality. This has fallen through. These things have happened to me. Um, and, and really, this is really a, a conversation for us as a community, not as an individual. Like, what, have we, what agreements can we make with our reality as a church? And, and, and then there's this idea of repentance, which is seeing a truer way, a better way uh, forward in Jesus and, in, and turning towards that. So let's see what happens to them as we wrap this up. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Now, these are the same hills they were going up to get their wood for their paneled houses. And he says, I want you to take that same time and energy and put it into what I'm up to, not what you want to be up to, so that I might be glorified. See, their whole 
their whole existence was around making God big, making God glorified, and to make his name great, not their own. So what is the response of the people? Um, it goes like this. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because of the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. They had this, they had this moment of, of repentance and they had this moment of confession. They, they, they made an agreement like, yeah, that's what's been happening and it hasn't been working out. Instead, they didn't start go, okay, let's go, grab your hammer, let's start building the temple. They first fell on their faces in worship of the Lord. And, and I don't know if you saw, there, there's, there's two different dates, and, and Page's um, translation just clearly highlighted the dates. The word of the Lord came to Haggai on August 29th. They didn't start working on the temple until September 21st. There was a period of time there where they sat in the reality of their life that they, 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 they just didn't get to work. They, they sat and they, they, they saw their life. They, they, they saw the impact of their decisions over the last 15, 16 years. This reminds me of Psalm 51 with David and, and David's like confession. And, and he talks about this in Psalm 51. And this won't be on the screen. I'm just throwing this to you. It says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. So you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He's like, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And you, God, will not despise that. There's something happening in the people where they're like, oh my gosh, we've missed the plot. And they sat with that and they confessed it and they, they began to tune their hearts towards a different way forward. It's this like reverent trust and control in something, like putting our control into something else. And, and when that happens, the fear of the Samaritans began to get less. And, and, and I think what happens with many of us is we have so many fears in our lives that drive us, that, that make us kind of veer in and out of things in our lives. And, and really, if the perspective, if our perspective changed about who God is and what God's all about, I think those fears would begin to start to dissipate. Verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord, the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Remember earlier he says, these people. <laughs> it's like, now I'm with you. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Like, I love how, I mean, I should have just read Paige's passage. Like, because it was enthusiasm that started to happen, right? And you saw enthusiasm, the spirit of Joshua and the high priest and the whole, the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, just the enthusiasm began to build and they began to work. In September, at the end of September. Now, what about us? Um, and some of you are like, oh, okay, here's what he's doing. He's equating building the temple with like remodeling our church, and we've got to all like go down there and remodel. No. <laughs> just like, no. Some of you don't even want touching any of the remodel. Like, just be honest. That was supposed to be a funny joke. Like, um, <laughs> 
Some of you maybe took offense at that. Um, <laughs> that's, the, the building is not the point. The building is not the point. Because what you will see in the whole progression of the temple is this. The temple started, and it was the tabernacle, it was the meeting place of God, it's where heaven and earth met. And the temple was built, it was supposed to be where heaven and earth met. And you know what's funny? Solomon builds his house before he builds the temple too. And there's something really human about us uh, as human beings that we try to take care of ourselves first and then we turn our attention, okay, God, now I got some time. Okay, God, now I got some money. Or okay, God, now I got some like margin in my life that I'm going to participate in what you're up to. And, and I think that the, what the temple story tells us is ultimately down the line, and we'll get into this in more specific, but you and I become... In, in the age after Jesus, we become temples of the Holy Spirit. That we actually become like walking, breathing places where heaven and earth are supposed to meet. Right? And what's interesting here is that we, even though we're walking and breathing, we're supposed to be walking and breathing places where temple, the heaven and earth are supposed to meet, we get off track too. We focus on our own lives. We focus on our own comfort. In the church, together, we are a collection of where heaven and earth meet. And I think it's easy for us as a church to get off track. And that we're saved into something, and that we, we have to be a part of what God is up to in the world. And, we, and it's that whole idea, of I said last week, about how we spend our coins, how we spend our day. And so this is just the beginning of a conversation a call for us to return to the work that God has creating in us to do. That we should consider our ways like these folks. Um, that we can see how we get off and how we mislive. And that might, we might take this opportunity to repent and return to what God is up to. Okay, So we're going to come to the table. I'm going to pray. And um, just kind of guide us into... Um, the communion table together. God, we um, recognize because of this ancient writing that although we have technology and we have more information and, and even more information about you than they had, that our hearts are human. And our hearts tend to guide us into misliving. And God, I, know, I remember the, this beautiful passage that as Jesus is surrounded by his disciples on the night he was about to be betrayed, and they didn't really get the whole plot at that moment. But Jesus, you invited them to share the cup. You invited them to break the bread. And you promised them that you would be with them. Just like God has promised these people in this book of Haggai that he is with them. And so, God, we come to the table ready to re-sign re up and re-pledge 
to continue the work that you've given us to, get, to do. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we cannot pray that prayer without re-signing up to be a part of making that happen. And so, God, we come to the table because of your body broken for us and your blood spilled for us. That may this today be a moment of reflection, uh, of where we've been misliving, of what you have for us, not only as individuals, but as a church. We pray these things in your name. Amen.